Hey, writers, join our first draft weekly writers club. We meet every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern time. For more information, go to writingclassradio.com and click on the classes tab. Hola, this is Andrea Askowitz, and you're listening to Writing Class Radio. You'll hear true personal stories and learn a little bit about how to write your own stories. And I'm not in Spain, so I'm not going to say hola. (laughs) I'm Allison Langer. Together, we produce this podcast, which is equal parts heart and art. By heart, we mean the truth in a story. And by art, we mean the craft of writing. No matter what's going on in our lives, writing class is where we tell the truth. It's where we work out our shit. There's no place in the world like writing class, and we want to bring you in. All right, before we dive into our show... There's a few things we wanted to mention. Okay, first, we started a movement. I designed these camo baseball hats with pink elephants on the front when I first got cancer because elephants symbolize the people in your life who protect you. So if you have no idea why we're talking cancer and elephants, go back to episode 73 called How to Write When Shit Gets Real. This awesome woman on Etsy, her company's called The Turnip Seed, helped me uh, design the hats and I've given them to all my hardcore elephants. And because people are asking for them, we've decided to sell them and donate the proceeds to the Pink Wig Project. So when my hair started falling out from chemo, my hairdresser told me about this Pink Wig Project. And I jumped on their website and I loved their story. The woman who started it, Terry Trotter, uh, had breast cancer and wanted the women going bald, including herself, to um, have something fun. So this pink wig stood for power and fun and living your life and not letting cancer cancer rule. I wore my pink wig from the Pink Wig Project to a fundraiser last week, and it was fun, and I did feel powerful. I want to make clear that people, um, that the hats are not necessarily for people going through cancer. The hats are for anyone in your world that is your support person, all your support people. That's, that's what the elephant hats are for. They're for everybody that you love. Anyway, if you're wondering what you can do for the people in your lives who just got diagnosed, you can go to this website, thepinkwigproject.org, or you can buy our camo elephant hats on our website. We're not keeping any of the money. So the hats cost $80 for a pack of four, which we put together so that each pack of four could donate one wig, one free wig. Um... And all the proceeds are going directly to the cost of the wig, and any extra that is received that doesn't get picked up by any wig, people needing a pink wig goes towards cancer research. So support the Pink Wig Project and buy a bunch of hats. All right, I want to um, switch gears for a second and talk about your Tuesday Zoom class. Okay, so Allison has a class every Tuesday noon um eastern time that anyone can participate in it's because it's through zoom you don't even need zoom to participate you can just participate i sat in on it 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 is so fucking great it's an hour it's fun right it's so good i was we just get together and write i mean basically it's just an excuse to take a break in your day and do something for you yeah something that just is you know a self-care and just we sit and we write and the way you get involved is you just join patreon for 25 dollars a month so really that boils down to like 650 a class it's really cool and it's a good group and right now it's still pretty small and we all write and you know three people usually per week get to share and what i've noticed is it's turned into a really cool support 
support group community for each other. So people are sharing what they've, what they're trying to publish and they're sharing, you know, things that they're writing. It's a great place for people to come together and just write for 30 minutes. And well, share. I had such a great time on the Tuesday Zoom and Allison, you do such an excellent job giving feedback and it's just the best idea you ever had. So if you're a listener and you need a, a tiny support group or a giant support group, a lot of support and a one hour a week of writing, just get on patreon.com slash writing class radio and join for $25 a month. Yeah, it's $6 a class. See ya on Tuesday. Okay, now to today's show, we bring you a true and personal story from one of our very own team members, Arielle Henley. Arielle does publicity and audience engagement for Writing Class Radio, and I want to tell you that this woman is the salt of the earth. She is such a good person. I just love her. Her story was published in an online magazine called Narratively, and on this episode, you're going to hear how, how she went from idea to published story to published book. You're also going to hear from Lily Danziger, who was Ariel's editor at Narratively. Lily is also the editor at Catapult, and on this episode, she will tell us tips on how to get published in both those magazines. I listen to those tips because I've been rejected by those both of those twice. <laughs> uh, all right, here's Ariel reading her story. There's a mathematical equation that proves I'm ugly. Or so I learned in my seventh grade art class. I am ugly. There's a mathematical equation to prove it. Or so I was told by the boy that sat behind me in my seventh grade art class. I'm going to stick my pencil through the back of your eye, he told me, laughing. It's not like you could get much uglier. Even the teacher thinks so. Two years earlier, a different boy whose name I can no longer remember, angrily asked me what was wrong with my face after I beat him in a game of handball during recess. You have the weirdest set of eyes I've ever seen, he told me. When my teacher overheard this, he sent the boy to the principal's office, where I would later go and give my side of the story, only to be told that I needed to not be so sensitive. So when the boy in my art class continued poking me in the shoulder with the back of his pencil, I said nothing. My art teacher that year was a heavy-set black woman named Miss J. She had a laugh so loud it echoed down the corridor. She wore beautiful bright colors and taught us about artists and movements that I had never heard of and encouraged us to explore what art meant to us both collectively and as individuals. My school was filled with children who came from more upper-than-middle-class families, the offspring of doctors and business executives and athletes. I had always felt out of place with children who were taken care of by nannies, who had fathers who attended prestigious universities and were frequently away on business trips. My father was a cabinet maker and my mother issued building permits the next town over. Neither had more than a high school diploma. It was a town of mostly white people, so having a black woman as a teacher felt almost cultural in a way that only white, sheltered, upper-middle-class children would ignorantly understand. Every week, Miss J required students to research an artist, a movement, or a piece of artwork that we were drawn to. Art isn't about what you see, she would tell the class. It's about what you feel. Show me what you feel. 
We had to research and write a one-page report explaining our topic and what it meant for our art. After school on Wednesdays, she would hold studio time when students could come in, work on new projects, and discuss the things we had learned in class. It was usually just me and a handful of other students I had become friends with. One week, Miss J spent the first half of class discussing the role of beauty in art and how the very idea of beauty was subjective and dependent upon the interpretation of the audience. She taught us about the golden ratio, the mathematical equation that in many ways explained beauty. During the Renaissance period, artists would use this equation to create balance, symmetry, and beauty in their artwork. It was first explained over 2,000 years ago in Euclid's Elements and described a sequence found frequently in nature. Based on Fibonacci's sequence, the ratio combines symmetry and asymmetry in a way that is alluring and attractive to the eye. Often applied to design, architecture, and nature, the closer an object's measurements were to that ratio, the more beautiful it was. One week, during a discussion on facial structure and drawing portraits, Miss J mentioned the golden ratio again. She told us that scientists had studied this equation using the formula to quantify beauty. They analyze and they measure, she told us. They measure the hairline to the root of the nose, right between the eyelids, and from right between the eyelids to the base of the nose, and from the base of the nose to the bottom of the chin. If these numbers are equal, the individual is said to be more attractive. She gestured as she spoke. She told us that the ear should be the same length as the nose and the width of an eye should equal the space between the eyes. The ratio states that the length of a woman's face divided by the width should have a ratio of 1 to 1.618. In order to be considered beautiful, that is. She showed us work by Renaissance artists like Raphael and Botticelli. I had never understood mathematical equations or ratios, and so the only thing I learned from her lesson was that these were the beauty standards a woman must meet if she wanted to be deemed worthy. Miss J went further, telling us that additional research into the role of the golden ratio in determining female beauty reveals a translation of these calculations into an attractiveness ranking system. Individuals, mostly women, were rated on a scale of 1 to 10 based on the symmetry of their facial structure with most individuals scoring between a 4 and a 6. Never had an individual been ranked a perfect 10, but still we lived in a society that found the need to measure and rate and rank and score. I couldn't help but think that if my appearance had been measured against the golden ratio, my formal rating wouldn't have been higher than a 2. I grew up having every flaw pointed out to me. I grew up believing I was wrong. It's part of the territory that comes with being born with a facial disfigurement as a result of Crouzon syndrome, a rare disorder where the bones in the head do not grow. My eyes were too far apart, too crooked, my nose too big, my jaw was too far back, my ears too low. There were regular appointments with doctors and surgeons trying to fix me and my twin sister, who was also born with Crouzon syndrome. Some of it was for medical purposes, other times for aesthetics. I would sit in a room while doctors took pictures of my face from every angle. They would pinch and poke, circling my flaws. I would sit and let them pick apart my every flaw, and I wanted it, I did. Fix me, I would beg. They would do their best. I'd have surgery, recover, and return for more pictures, more circling, and more detailing of every flaw. I was obsessed with symmetry, 
obsessed with bridging the gap between the person I was and the person I felt I should be. The afternoon the boy in my seventh grade art class told me I was ugly, I told my mother that I wanted to die. She brought me to a therapist the following day. My therapist's name was Beth. She was a middle-aged woman with red, curly hair that fell just past her shoulders. She had a round stomach and round glasses and almost always wore green. I would sit in Beth's office, play Mancala, and tell her of my dreams to travel and write. We almost never spoke of my appearance. One day in March, I arrived a few minutes late to my appointment. I entered Beth's office where she sat facing the burnt orange plaid couch that looked straight out of a 1975 home furnishings catalog. We did not play Mancala. Instead, Beth looked directly at me and asked me if I was happy. I did not know how to answer, and so I cried. She took a tissue from the small table next to her and gave it to me, listening as I sobbed. When the tears stopped, we sat in silence for several minutes. It's like when you reread the same sentence over and over again without understanding what it means, I said, finally. That's how I feel about my life, about what I look like. She nodded as I spoke, looking at the tablet and pen sitting next to the tissues on the small table. She began to reach for it, but stopped. Instead, she folded her hands and put them in her lap. I don't understand it, I continued. These things, they just keep happening, and I know it has to mean something. It has to. I want my suffering to mean something. I want this pain to matter. She responded by giving me an assignment. She told me that she wanted me to take a picture of my face every day for the next few weeks. She told me that I had no connection with my physical self because my appearance had undergone drastic changes so many times. This made sense to me, and I was surprised I had never made the connection. You don't have to show these to anyone, she told me. Just take them for you. I was skeptical, but agreed. I used to cry at the sight of a picture of myself. The tears would consume me, and I would spend the following days refusing to leave the house. Seeing the images of the person I was made me angry. I was ugly. When I was nine years old, my twin sister and I were interviewed by the French edition of Mary Claire. Two women came to our home. My mother put us in dresses and curled our hair, and we sat at the dining room table, which we were only allowed to do on special occasions. The women took pictures of us and asked us questions about our life. All I can remember of them is their accents and the way I felt confused when they kept implying I was different. In the center of the table sat a framed picture of my sister and me from when we were five. We were in coordinating blue and white sweaters and holding strands of pearls. It was one of those forced mall photos that families like to hang in their homes to convince everyone else they are happy. I hated the picture. My eyes were bloodshot and I looked weak. It was taken only months after I had surgery to expand my skull and advance the middle of my face. They broke my bones and shifted everything forward necessary to rectify the premature fusion of my skull. They took bones from my hips and put them in my face. I had to learn how to walk again. A few years later, I found the Mary Claire article buried beneath memories in a thick layer of dust in the attic. I sat on the plywood floorboards and began translating with the basic French I had learned in school. The words spoke of the way the bones in my head were fused prematurely and described the devices that the doctors invented in the garages of their homes as a last resort. I cried as I read the words because it all felt so simple, the way they described it, I mean. They didn't mention the week spent in the ICU or the fact that my mother spent her nights hunched over the edge of my hospital bed too afraid to leave. The article didn't mention that I was a person and not a disease and stretched across the page in big bold letters, I saw it. Their faces resembled work of Picasso. 
The words stamped the page right below a picture of my sister and me sitting at our kitchen table laughing like normal children. But we weren't normal children, because normal children don't get written about in French magazines. Normal children don't get called ugly in French magazines. I was embarrassed, or maybe I was more ashamed, and I found myself wondering how I ever could have thought someone could think I was special. I felt the weight of the world on my shoulders, and it felt as though the whole world was laughing at a joke I was not in on. I slammed the magazine to the floor and spent the rest of the night in my room. Picasso was an artist. You are God's artwork, my mother would tell me. God should take up a new occupation, I would say back. I shredded the magazine that night. A few weeks after I found the article in my attic, I told Miss J about it, about how my face was compared to a Picasso painting. I told her of the assignment Beth had given me and asked her if I could incorporate my project into my class assignment. Miss J was supportive of my idea. She told me that appearance, much like design aesthetics, is arbitrary and exists only to assign meaning and purpose for those seeking it, but that ultimately our unique attributes are our signatures. They're the stamps on the world that only we can leave. They're the things that set us apart and make us beautiful. Miss J walked over to her desk, which sat against the wall in the front left corner of the classroom. She began punching the keys on her computer, and I stood there unsure whether I was to follow or not. Leonardo da Vinci explored beauty and symmetry through what he called the divine proportion. He was a math guy, she told me. So he frequently incorporated mathematics into his work to ensure they were visually appealing. She turned her computer screen toward me, scrolling through an article with images of da Vinci's profile of an old man, the Vitruvian Man, and Mona Lisa, all famously beautiful pieces. She stood behind her desk, one hand on the computer mouse, looking up at me. Do you know what da Vinci looked like? She enlarged an image of an old man with long white hair. I don't know about you, she quipped, but he doesn't look too pretty to me. I laughed. Being compared to Picasso may seem like an insult, but it's an honor, she told me. You are a masterpiece. Today, when I think of da Vinci, I do not think of the physical body of the man. I think of da Vinci as his talent, as his brilliance, as his legacy. His work is often said to have been a window into the extraordinary inner workings of his mind, and it reminds me that we are all more than our bodies, more than the ratio of our eyes to ears to nose to mouth. I used to find the existence of algebraic and geometric formulas that explained beauty oddly comforting, because then at least there was an idea, something to work toward. But art isn't necessarily about beauty. Art is supposed to make you feel something, and I began to realize my appearance was my art. My body, my face, my scars told a story, my story. But I guess that's how life works sometimes, only noticing beauty in retrospect and poetry in silence. Sometimes I catch my reflection in the mirror and I remember the words of my teacher, beauty is subjective, and suddenly the reflection I see doesn't feel like such a stranger. Um, I don't want to say too much about the story because we have Ariel coming on and then Lily, but I want to say that I read this story and narratively and I just fell in love with this narrator, even before I knew her in person. You'll hear our conversation with Ariel after the break. We're back. This is Allison and you're listening to Writing Class Radio. 
We sat down with Arielle Henley, and she told us what it was like to write her story, this story, and how it led to a book deal. Her book, titled A Face for Picasso, is coming out winter 2021. I asked Arielle why she wrote this essay now as an adult. I've kind of known that I wanted to write about it ever since I was in seventh grade. Like it was sort of the idea of like, one day I will tell this story and everything will be fine. And so that's sort of like what kept me going. And so, I mean, my childhood, middle school, high school, college, everything, I was obsessed with writing things down and documenting it because everything was always changing. Um, So I have journals from sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade on, um, and they were like daily. And then in college, I had a blog. Um, And then when I moved home, I moved back to California and I started working, taking care of an elderly woman who used to be a writer in San Francisco. And so she mostly just wanted someone to hang out with and help her when she needed it. Um, So I had a lot of free time. And so when she was taking a nap, I would take an online art or um, online writing class through UCLA extension program. And so they assigned us an essay to write. So I was like, I don't really know what to write about. So I'll write about the one thing I do know, this experience. So I just started there and I just sat at her kitchen table while she took a nap and just wrote it. It's like, "Hmm, okay. And I didn't think it would go anywhere. I didn't expect anything of it. I was like, I don't know if this is any good, but here we go. Um, And everyone in the online class responded to it really well. And then on a whim, I submitted it to Narratively and they liked it too. Arielle said she thought once she wrote the story, everything would be fine. So I asked her how that worked out. Uh, That's not how life works, you know. Um, But I think that writing this essay sort of opened up... um, you know, a lot of other essays and a lot of other issues, and especially writing this book over the last five months, a lot of things that I just never really dealt with came to the surface and forced me to deal with it. So it's been hard, um, you know, mentally and emotionally, but I think that's part of healing is going back and, you know, doing the hard work that I never did. I've finally come to terms with things that I hadn't, but It wasn't like, oh, yay, now I wrote this and everything's wonderful, you know. We asked Arielle to tell us about some of the most difficult things about writing her book. Um, So I talk a lot about trauma and what it's like to both experiencing it firsthand and to witness it because I'm an identical twin. And so we both went through all of our surgeries, all of our medical stuff, our appearance changing. And so it wasn't just you know, waking up from surgery in pain and having to recover from that and deal with, you know, having a new face that I don't recognize, but my identical twin who used to look like me no longer does. And she's in pain too. And so to be laying in a bed next to her and we're both like crying and like, that's not something that's fun to think about. It's not. Um, I was very angry and not very nice. And so... More than anything, I think that for me has been the hardest thing to come to terms with. Um, Just looking at my past self and not always liking what I see. So, but at the same time, it's been a really rewarding experience because I've gotten to connect with people that I haven't talked to in years and apologize and have these like really meaningful conversations of like, hey, 
I know I treated you like garbage and I'm really sorry about that, you know, and just have that conversation as an adult when we didn't have the emotional maturity to have those conversations when we were younger. Um, So a lot of healing. Ariel said writing this book helped her come to terms with a lot of things. And so I asked, like what? Being okay with what I look like now when I'm still not conventionally beautiful. You know, I still get stared at, but making the decision to be okay with who I am and not wanting to change me and going back and reliving all the experiences where people told me how ugly I am and, you know, what a a waste of life, basically, um, and not wanting to change. So just being able to remember those experiences and not take them personally and not take them to heart. Writing this essay and her book helped her connect for the first time with other people going through a similar experience as hers. There's an entire community of people that I didn't even know existed. Um, Growing up, there was my twin sister and I, but we're the only people in our family who have the condition um, because my parents don't. Um, So it was just kind of the two of us. It was us against the world, right? And so since writing about it and sharing my story, I hear from people all the time with not just Cruzon syndrome, but... um, other kinds of physical differences, other craniofacial disorders. There are people who have experiences that were just like mine that I didn't even know were there. That's really meaningful um, and powerful, and it means a lot to me. So it makes whatever hate mail I get uh, very worth it. We asked Ariel what it was like to work with her editor, Lily Danziger, at Narratively. Oh, she's amazing. Um, Yeah, so I submitted it. I think it was like through Submittable, and I got a yes. Originally, I had submitted it to the Rumpus, and I got a rejection like the same day. And looking back, it it doesn't really fit there. I was just still learning. Um, So like, I wasn't, I was like, oh, darn, okay, like maybe it's not that great. Uh, And I was brand new to writing in general and still exploring different outlets and stuff. Um, and so I submitted it through Submittable and um, got a yes from Lily and she was lovely. She sent back some edits and originally I didn't want to mention that I had Cruzon syndrome and she was awesome because I remember being, and I don't know if she would agree or not, I remember feeling like I was being difficult and I wasn't trying to, but I wanted to um, limit how much I told people about things. Like I didn't want to mention that I had Cruzon syndrome. Uh, I didn't, I want to say I didn't even want to mention that I had a twin or I wanted to like mention it like at the end. And she's like, okay, but like you can't have someone read an entire essay and be like, wait, who? And I was like, okay, good point. So it was a really eye-opening experience and it was, it changed how I approached every essay after that. Um, cause she was very, she's a very respectful editor. Um, But she was very good at explaining, like, from a reader's perspective, which isn't something that I had, I don't know, really considered before. Because it was like, no, I'm writing this for me. I don't care how other people read it. And it's like, well, that that matters, though. Um, I loved what the end result was. Ariel's story not only got published in Narratively, but it caught the eye of several agents, one of which said yes. Then Ariel created a book proposal and sold the book to FSG, which is a division of Macmillan. 
Then she got an advance and was able to dedicate full time to writing her book. She told us it was a dream come true, but it was not always an easy road. Right away from the essay, she got like 10 people inquiring, but they all wanted to turn it into wonder. And she was like, no, we're not doing wonder. And so she had to get out there and pound the pavement. So it looked pretty cush. And then all of a sudden it was hard, hard ass work. So I tell you, it sounds like a dream and dreams sometimes have a nightmarish effect (laughs) at some points. Yeah, but it's still, she's still got this book going and she worked on it really hard and she's done and now she just gets to wait till it comes out and then what, you know? Then we get to see what happens when she becomes like this famous author. Um, But she also talked about getting like hate mail and God, people are so mean, really mean, sending stuff like you're ugly and I mean, who who in their right mind would say stuff like that? Yeah, the the advice is never to read your hate mail. All, but you know what? There's ninety nine per like ninety nine percent of the people are kind and loving, and it's amazing. So I guess that's a lesson for all of us to really not focus on the one percent. So now we bring you our conversation with editor Lily Danziger. Lily gives us her take on what it takes to get published at Narratively and Catapult and other tips that will help you realize your own dreams of getting your story published and maybe even a book deal. We asked her how she got into editing in the first place. After I graduated school, I was bartending and you know trying to do some freelance writing and trying to finish my book. And I just, I was trying for a long time before I was able to actually do it to transition out of bartending and into you know, a writing job full time. Um, and I, I just, I had a good relationship with the guys at Narratively because I'd written a few pieces for them and I just, I was desperate to get out of the bar. So I just emailed them and was like, do you have a job for me or can you invent a job for me or can I please come work for you in some way? Um, and so they, it started out as like a very part-time kind of contributing editor deal um and that role kind of grew and grew and grew over several years until I was finally able to leave the bar I asked her if there was a trick to writing memoir yeah I mean it's a lot of things I think it you know a lot of it just has to do with taste obviously you know and 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 as much as we want to believe that it's all about the writing and not about you know the sellability of our life story that does have to do with it too you know if you really if you have an interesting new or surprising story to tell that goes a long way the less outrageous your story is the more important it is that you have to really tell it in a in a really exciting artful way you know or ideally have a really outrageous interesting story that's also told in an <laughs> artful way what I've learned just from working on my own memoir which took 11 years to write and also just from, you know, teaching memoir and and working with clients is that I just, I think there's just no shortcut. I think everybody who does it has to kind of reinvent the wheel a little bit and just has to go through that slog where like they throw away several drafts and they decide they hate it and it's horrible and they give up and then they come back to it and they start over and they, you know, (laughs) you have to do that a few times and eventually hopefully turn it into something good. We changed the subject a little and asked how Lily calls for submissions 
and what is the process for submitting to Narratively or Catapult? Yeah, so I still occasionally pick up stories for Narratively, and when I do that, it's usually through, you know, specified uh, calls for pitches with submission windows, and I only leave those open for about two weeks, because I still, you know, I, I just did one that just finished up this week, and I got uh, like 300 and something responses in those two weeks, so that's going to take me some time. I like to work with really specific prompts for calls for pitches, just because, you know, with personal essays, it's such a mixed bag, and there's so many great writers out there writing personal essays, um, and there's also just a lot of, like, uh, <laughs> looking for a diplomatic way to say, you know. There are a lot of people who who feel like writing personal essays means that you don't really have to engage with the rest of the literary world and with what's being published out there and you know they think it's just a matter of like recording their thoughts or telling a story about something that happened to them a long time ago and then they ship it off everywhere that publishes personal essays you know and it's like well if you had looked at like even just the home page of this site you would know that this is not the kind of thing we publish um so there's a lot of wading through slush that's just not good or not a fit um and i find that that reduces somewhat when I have a really specific call um, and very specific details about like here are all the elements these pieces should have and you know all the very specific requirements um, you know even if I don't end up taking them they're at least you know somewhat in line with what I asked for <laughs> um, yeah so that's how I do it for narratively and then for catapult I kind of I take pitches and submissions on more of a rolling basis. Um, I focus on something pretty specific there, too. Um, I like to do personal essays with uh, a research or critical element, so personal essays that look at a work of art or a film or a historical figure or mythological figure or, you know, some interesting external cultural object and kind of use that that thing and and kind of dissecting its meaning in order to tell a personal story and kind of reflecting the personal story through that external thing. I have a medium story um, that really breaks down what I'm looking for in a narratively piece and gives some examples and gives directions. Um, With narratively, you know, if you see that specific call, I'll include my email address and say, you know, send it to me by this date. And and then they can email me, and I usually will also say, like, if you're sending a full submission, send it as a word attachment only, please, for the love of God, do not paste the whole essay into the email. That's, like, a really outdated thing that used to be necessary when computer viruses were a thing. But other than, you know, outside of those very specific pitch windows, which are usually only open for about two weeks, you can also always submit through Submittable, and the, the contribute page on Narratively's homepage will take you to the submittable um, and you can send it through there and that's open you know all year um, and then catapult you know if you're sending something specific to me that's you know one of those external element kind of critical personal essays you can send that to my email but catapult also does all kinds of different personal essays and fiction and you, know, you can always go to their submittable page as well Follow Lily on Twitter, okay? So it's at L-I-L-L-Y-D-A-N-C-Y-G-E-R. So read her story on medium.com and that breaks down exactly what she's looking for. It's a super clear explanation of what makes a story great in general. So anyway, even if you're not trying to submit, at least check it out. We asked Lily to tell us what drew her to Ariel's story. 
The original submission was really solid, and actually is not that far from what the piece ended up being. Um, most of the main pieces were there, you know, her writing, Ariel's a great writer, the writing was all there, the emotion was there, um, and I just, I loved the specificity of it, you know, I loved that she zoomed into this really, this one moment in this art class. I think a lot of personal essays try to, they kind of stay on the surface because they're trying to talk about something big in the writer's life that they've dealt with over years and years, so they kind of end up summarizing the experience in a way that makes it less tangible and accessible. So zooming into this one art class I felt was a really smart way to make it tangible and vivid in, you know, an essay length. So I love this question. I asked her if you can be a shitty writer if you have a great story. You know, when I was first starting out as an editor, I think I took on more of those where I was like, this is about something interesting, but it's a total mess. But like, I'm going to work with the writer and get it there, you know, and I would do like eight revisions and like dragging them through it and explaining each step of the process and doing a lot of the rewriting for them. And, you know, I've done that less and less as I go. For me these days, it's as much about your ability to tell the story. I want to be taken in with the description and I want to I want to see that the writer understands how their story is working and why and, you know, the mechanics of the shape of the story and, you know, that they know what they're doing, basically. Lily is not only an editor, but also a teacher, and I gushed all over her about wanting to take her class, and I asked, how do I get in? Um, I teach online with Catapult, so I have a a four-week personal essay class where we kind of break down the elements of an essay and students write one piece over the course of the class and then um, I give feedback on it at the end and then I also have a memoir structure class that's for people working on book projects. I love taking classes and you know it's I was glad to realize recently that like there's you don't reach a point where you don't need classes anymore. I still I love taking classes from writers I admire even if it's about stuff that I feel like I know really well already it's still just so fun and exciting to see how other people explain it and get their perspective and their exercises and their feedback and you know I'm I was relieved to realize like I could keep taking writing classes for the rest of my life we also asked Lily about her new book which just came out October 2019 It's called Burn It Down. It's coming out from Seal Press, and it's an anthology of essays um, by women about anger. Um, So it's very timely. (laughs) The essays are not about, like, you know, the external cultural things that make us angry. They're really just about the different ways that women live with and experience their anger, and, and also a lot of the different fucked up things that happen when you repress your anger, you know, all the, the different ways that it finds to come out. Um, Because it will come out eventually in one form or another. Before the end of our interview, we asked Lily if she had one piece of advice for writers. This is what she said. We have to just keep saying it until everybody does it, but just to read the publication that you want to submit to before you submit to them. Oh my God, I love these women. Both of them. I love I know, they're so inspiring. I know. We will have links on our website to both of these books. So check our website and and get reading. I'm dying to get over this cancer shit so I can lose the cancer brain and get back to writing my book. I'm dying to write books and essays. You know, this shit is hard. You need your brain. Um, Your brain seems pretty good. Cancer, chemo brain or not. 
I had four hours of sleep last night, so I'm doing pretty well, but I have a headache. Oh, well. Oh, I'm going to go eat some vegetables. Okay. Eat anyway, some vegetables. thank you, Lily and Ariel, for sharing your time and your stories with us. And thank you guys for listening. Writing Class Radio is produced by Virginia Laura, Andrea Askwitz, and me, Allison Langer. Theme music by Christine Corey. Additional music by Justina Chandler, Ari Herstand, Andy G. Cohen, and Poddington Bear. Writing Class Radio is sponsored by the Launchpad at the University of Miami. There's more writing class on our website, writingclassradio.com, including video classes, which are amazing, stories to study, and editing resources. Contact us at info at writingclassradio.com. If you love this show and enjoy all the extras on our website, hit the support us button. And check out the writing classes and publishing insights we are giving our Patreon supporters. $10 a month gets you an all-access pass to Andrea's publishing conversations, which are awesome. Her discussions, her questions, everything. $25 a week gets you a writing class with me. The classes are via Zoom and are for one hour. We write to a prompt and share what we wrote. A new episode will drop the first Wednesday of every month, so look for us. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our stories. Everyone has a story. What's yours? Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at averyrich.com.